Good morning, Southside. Hope you all are doing well. We continue our journey through Romans this morning, and we started a little bit over a year ago. This, I think, if I've got it right, is our 43rd sermon on Romans. And if you're a guest and you're tuning in, hey, thanks for watching. Glad you're here. This is what we normally do at Southside, just walk through the Bible. And so we've been in Romans, and we just walk through Romans and really just have whatever is here before us is what God has for us. And so the point of the sermon will be the point of the passage. You know, some churches treat the Bible kind of like a backseat driver, and it'll say some annoying things, and we just try to ignore it because we don't want to follow it. Uh, Some churches treat the Bible like the passenger. You know, it's there, and if we get lost, we can ask for help. But at Southside, we really want the Bible to be in the driver's seat of things. And so that's what we do is just walk through scripture, letting God set the agenda through his word. And as we've seen, Romans 1 to 11 is really all about what God has done for us in Christ. It's what we call the indicative. It's what he's done. And a big theme of Romans 1 to 11 is justification and our need for justification. So the fact that we are sinners, we are not righteous, yet we need a righteousness. We need perfect righteousness, yet on our own, we don't have it. And so God in the gospel has graciously and freely provided a right standing for those who trust in Christ. We are justified, declared in the right by believing in Jesus. So that's a big theme of especially Romans 1 to 8. And so then you have, after 11 chapters of grace, Paul then turning to commands. Romans 12, 1 really is the hinge. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, to live in a certain way. You see, it's not enough for us Christians just to obey. We need to, therefore, obey. We need to live in a certain way in light of what God has done. I recently read an article on gospel-driven ministry by a guy named Mike Bullmore, and he has this image I want to show you. It's called the gospel flywheel. And you notice in the center, we start with the gospel. That's the hub of everything. And then from there, there are gospel truths, implications and truths from the gospel. And then from there, there is gospel conduct. And that order is really important. We start with the gospel. That was Romans 1 to 11. Gospel truths are in Romans 1 to 11. And then now, Romans 12 to 16, we have our gospel conduct that's rooted in the gospel. And so here, as he's already done, Paul's going to fire off a list of sharp commands on what it looks like to present our whole selves as living sacrifices, what it looks like to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And the Spirit's going to give us these little tweet-length instructions to form a moral culture in the church. This is not just a checklist. You know, we love checklists as human beings. Some of you may have grown up And churches that had, you know, your little offering envelopes and maybe they had check marks, you know, are you really pleasing the Lord? Check yes or no. Did you give your offering? Did you pray? Did you read your Bible? Did you witness? Some of you tried to cover all those in that 10 minutes there in your pew when you were a little kid. Well, God's not concerned merely with us checking off a list, but us becoming certain types of people. And that's what the commands are for. He's interested in holistic, total transformation. Remember our core value, we worship Jesus in all of life. If you've studied any philosophy or ethics, the Bible's closer to virtue ethics than deontological ethics. The goal is not merely just duty, 
but a destiny. And in that sense, we also affirm the teleological strand of ethics. We act now how we will act in the end, telos, towards the ends, for all eternity. And so we practice kingdom ethics now in preparation for what we'll be like in eternity. Romans 12 is going to help us set it in. So turn in Romans 12 if you've got a Bible. And we're just going to look at three verses this morning, Romans 12, 9 to 11. Romans 12, 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So I want us to consider seven marks of the community of Christ from these three verses. And the first is genuine love. Notice how he starts there in Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. This is really the heading. And in many ways, what he's going to say through the whole rest of Romans is unpacking what it means to apply this command to have genuine, sincere love. And last week I mentioned it's so important that we define love biblically. We don't define love from rom-coms or Hallmark. We define love in Scripture. And Scripture is so clear that love is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. 1 John 3, 16 by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. That's what love is. It's laying down our lives for others. The word here is agape. And Paul's already used it a few times in Romans. Flip back a few pages to Romans chapter 5. He uses the word in Romans 5, 5. It's this idea of self-giving love. He says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. And then in verse 8 of chapter 5, he uses it again. God shows his love, agape, for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, gave himself for us. Flip over to Romans chapter 8. He uses the word in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he uses it again in verse 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Biblically, love is giving of self for the good of others. Jesus laid down his life. And self-giving love is the hallmark. It is the key characteristic of the Christian. It is the heart of discipleship. I want to read just a few verses that show us this. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. You've been called to freedom Brothers and sisters, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law. Then we have a whole chapter on it. For the sake of time, we won't go there, but 1 Corinthians 13. Or listen to Jesus in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well asked him which commandment is the most important of all and Jesus answered the most important is hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength the second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself there's no other commandment greater than these this is hugely important 
James 2.8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Love is the hallmark of the Christian. And so Paul says, let love be genuine. Let it be sincere. Let it be without hypocrisy, without play acting. No two-faced, full of authenticity. No baloney, but legit love, which means legit self-sacrificing for one another. Giving of ourselves, giving of our time, giving of our resources, our prayers, finances, gifts for the good of the church. You know, it's really easy just to say, yeah, I love the church without actually loving anyone in the church. It was Linus who said, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. Or maybe you've heard the hymn, to dwell above with saints I love. Oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints that I know, well, that's another story. Well, that's insincere love, friends. And maybe you say, you know what? I'm just not there. I don't love these people. I don't love some of them, but I don't love them. How can I be sincere? How can I not be a hypocrite? I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it in his chapter on charity, the old term for love in, in mere Christianity. He says, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. So act and the feelings that we put too much stock in often follow the action. So when you're having trouble loving one another, act as if you do. And then second, if you have trouble loving others, remind yourself of the gospel. We're not loved because we're lovely. God has not lavished love upon us because we're so lovable. And so the way God has treated us should lead us to treat others the same. As God has treated us, so should we be to others. So as you act in love and as you remind yourself of the gospel, your heart will soften toward others. And you'll be able to have sincere love. That's the first mark. The second mark is a hatred of evil. Look again at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Abhor. It's a strong verb. Hate exceedingly. Detest it. Detest evil. And remember, love is the heading here. Part of biblical love is the hatred of evil. You see, in the Bible, love and hate go together. Love is not fluffy all the time. Sometimes it has sharp edges because love works for what is best. And so what is worst needs to be put in its place. Love is giving of self for the good of another. And evil is not good for anyone. In fact, it's destructive. Origen, early, early Christian thought leader, said, a person who does not hate the vices cannot love and preserve the virtues. You see, you cannot love rightly without hate, hating rightly. And to do that, we got to love what God loves and we got to hate what God hates, which is evil. And God defines what is good and what is evil. By the way, you can't even define evil apart from God to determine what's good and determine what's evil requires a universal absolute Standard And secularism has no basis for this. They don't have a universal absolute standard. They have no basis for good and evil and determining what's good and evil. Really, it's just all personal preference according to their worldview. But we learn here and all over the Bible, there is absolute objective good and evil. 
contrary to what our culture says, which is so relativistic and pluralistic and postmodern. So we just got to know this is contrary to the way most Americans think and have thought for a long time. In fact, listen to Alan Bloom. He He wrote this 33 years ago in the closing of the American mind. He said, there's one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. That was in 1987. How much more so today? But for us, there is absolute good and evil and God defines it. And here's where we just got to realize that so much of what our world celebrates, God calls evil and he calls his people to hate evil. So real love is concerned with right and wrong, with good and evil. And again, our culture just doesn't get this at all. The, the mantra there is if it feels good, do it. If it works for you, do it. And I'm afraid that too many Christians are influenced by the world in this regard. I'm afraid too many Christians do not abhor what is evil. Instead, we'll watch it and we'll listen to it and we'll celebrate it. We'll pay for it. We'll laugh at it. So friends, we've got to be on guard against worldliness. Listen to the way theologian David Wells defines worldliness. He says, worldliness is what makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. Worldliness is what makes sin the norm and righteousness odd. Friends, we think about just the media we consume. Almost every single show on television or Netflix makes sin look normal and makes holiness odd. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 5 about worldliness. Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. James 4.4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is this antithesis. First John 2 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. 
and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we need to be committed to love. We need to be committed to abhorring evil. Third, we need to cling to the good. Look at Romans 12, 9 again. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Notice, not just agree with the good. Don't just choose against evil and choose for the good. No, there's got to be some passion here. There's got to be some inner intensity. You must loathe evil. You can't have some neutral posture. To hating it. And you must cling to the good. You ever accidentally super glued your fingers together? Messing with Gorilla Glue or something and you just wasn't paying attention? Glue yourself to it. Glue yourself to the good. This verb here for hold fast is only used by Paul in two other places. And there the verb is used to refer to marital intimacy. Cling to the good. And what's the good? Well, the good is anything created by God that glorifies God. Hold fast to that. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's what the good is. The good is the will of God. And look back at chapter 12, verse 2, that 1 and 2, those foundational verses for where we're headed. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So love is hating the evil and clinging to the good. And then he says it again, in case you forgot, the fourth mark is devoted love. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Be devoted to loving one another. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. The word here is Philadelphia. So you've got phileo or philos for love and then autophos for sibling, love of brother. I love the city of Philadelphia. I haven't spent a lot of time there, but I love it for two main reasons. Number one, one of my favorite seminaries, Westminster Theological Seminary is there. A lot of my favorite theologians were there in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And then secondly, Rocky Balboa. Those two don't really go together. But you know why it's called Philadelphia? Well, William Penn wanted it to be a place for religious freedom, the city of brotherly love. And again, just notice how important love is. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Verse 10, love one another. How? With brotherly love. Love, love, love. Self-giving, familial love. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now concerning brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. This matters, friends. And it matters not just for Paul, it also matters for Peter. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart. The goal of it, and then the command. He just repeats himself. Or flipping over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And it doesn't matter just for Paul, and it doesn't matter just for Peter. They learned it from the Lord. 
John 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. These are incredible verses. And you know, the command to love one another is not really a new command. It was in Leviticus 19. What's new about it? Well, the new about it is, as I have loved you. Immediately there in John 13, as he washes the nasty feet of the disciples, giving of self for their good, but then pointing forward to the end of John, to the cross. We love one another as Jesus loved us, sacrificially. And this, Jesus says, is how the world will know that we are his disciples. Francis Schaeffer said that love is the final apologetic for the truth of Christianity. Self-giving, familial love. There are 40-something one-anothers in Scripture, and love one another is the capstone. In Colossians 3, after listing several of those, Colossians 3.14 says that above all else put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So here, Paul uses agape and Philadelphia, self-giving love and brotherly love. In fact, it's used twice in verse 10. Love one another as a family. Love one another in the same way as if you were related. I like the way the, the CEB translation translates this verse. Love each other like the members of your family. You know, sometimes you have to work to love your family, don't you? You may have disagreements frustrations. But what do we say? Well, he is my brother. Well, he is my sister. That's my pops. Because you don't leave family. At worst, you're stuck with them, so you're going to work it out. At best, though, you're committed to them. The church is a family. There's a, a, a professor named Joseph Hellerman. He's got a book, When the Church Was Family, and he studies what family meant in the first century. And then with all the familial language in the New Testament to refer to the church, and he says it should mean that the, the church is a family which has four characteristics. Number one, there's an emotional bond with the church. You ought to love one another. There ought to be feelings for one another. I hope you miss seeing one another desperately. Number two, there needs to be interpersonal harmony. There needs to be an absence of discord. We've talked a lot about conflict resolution. Number three, there's a sharing of resources within the family. We take care of each other. And then there's an undivided commitment, which is why one of our core values as a church, we are an authentic community. We're family. The fifth mark of the community of Christ is a culture of honor. Look again at Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. See, in the church, we honor one another. And to honor is to treat with value. Well, why do we do that? Well, first and foremost, because we're created in the image of God. As such, we have dignity. Again, secularism, the world doesn't have a basis to honor one another. Why would they, right? Unless it's for self-preservation. According to the evolutionary view of things, there's no difference between a human being and a cockroach. You know, you never see anybody celebrating the death of a cockroach. We don't have cockroach funerals. No, God's made humans different. We are made in the image of God. We are the crown of creation. So as such, we should honor one another. And secondly, in the church, not only created in the image of God, but we're brothers and sisters. We are blood-bought, spirit-filled family. And he says, outdo one another 
and showing honor. Use your competitive juices. Normally, what do we do? Normally, we try to outdo one another that we might receive honor. Right? Here, it's different. We should do the opposite. We should seek to outdo one another so that others might receive the honor. Maybe this week, is there some way you can surprise somebody by showing honor to them? This is hard. We're not the best at this. But we need to be verbally honoring one another regularly, encouraging one another, intentionally using our words to build one another up, right? Ephesians 4.29, the talk that comes from our mouth should be for building up. It should to give grace, be to give grace to those who hear. And so when you see something honorable, and one another, point it out, tell them, encourage them. Children, especially those children who have siblings, you know, a really great way that you can obey God is by seeking to honor your siblings. Seek to outdo them in honor. I know you like to compete with them and I know you like to win. Win at this. Outdo them in showing honor. Use your words to encourage them to build them up, not to tear them down. Culture of honor. Six, a zeal for God. Look at Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Don't be slothful. You know the sloth, right? It basically just hangs upside down. It's very methodical in all of its movements. Slowness of movement. Well, don't be like them. Don't act like them. Don't be lazy. Don't be inactive. All too often, especially over time, we lose our zeal. We become slothful toward God and the things of God. We become complacent and we just go through the motions. And many end up checking out completely. I mean, just look around. So many who at some point started to follow Jesus, but the love of the world just slowly ate away at their faith. Listen to J.C. Ryle. There are thousands who run well for a season and seem to bid fair to reach heaven, but by and by give up the race and turn their backs on Christ altogether. And what has stopped them? Have they found the Bible not true? Have they found the Lord Jesus failed to keep his word? No, not at all. But they have caught the epidemic disease. They are infected with the love of this world. Just consider how many kids of Christian parents grew up in the church. They begin well, but they end poorly. In their childhood, they seemed zealous for the Lord. They knew the verses and the catechisms and the songs. They talked a big game. They were excited about church. But how often do they drift? The boy grows up and is only concerned with sports and entertainment and video games. And the girl grows up and is only concerned with appearance and amusement and trivial things. Their spirituality has faded away and the love of the world has replaced it. Young people, hear the kind words of your God. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit. How many married people, they seem committed to the Lord while their kids are at home. But once they become empty nesters, they begin to drift away. In the early years, they looked like they were in. They loved the Lord. They served in the church. They were in community. Their faith seemed solid. But when the family grows up, worldliness just creeps in. And they let their guard down. And the waves slowly wash them away. How many begin with lives of prayer, time in the word, 
but compromise over time and neglect it until they can't even remember the last time they prayed or read the word. Little by little, they lose their first love. They cease to care about the Bible. They cease to care about sound doctrine. And they begin to think it's unloving to correct false teaching. They begin to think that being exclusive can't be the right way in today's world. Church, we must resist the drift. The waves of this world are beating on us all and they're only going to get higher and harder. We must swim upstream to be faithful. We must be pushing against the influence or it will cause us to drift away. To go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I like the J.B. Phillips paraphrase. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold because that's what it wants to do and that's what it will do if we become slothful, friends. Don't be slothful. Rather, be fervent in spirit. This verb here for be fervent can mean to boil, to be fired up with the spirit. Again, the CEB. Don't hesitate to be enthusiastic. Be on fire in the spirit as you serve the Lord. I wonder, does that characterize your walk with the Lord? On fire? We'll often talk that way about new believers. Oh, he's on fire. Christian, are you on fire for the Lord? fired up with spirit-fueled zeal? Maybe you have to honestly say, no, I'm not. How do you get there? Back to the basics, prayer, word, church. Ask God for help. Ask God to fire you up. That's the kind of prayer he loves to answer. So commit to prayer. Commit to time in the word daily. Jump in the F260 plan that we include in our weekly email. It's one chapter a day. Jump in with us. Maybe you've gotten behind. Hey, skip ahead. Jump back in. Get engaged. Stay plugged in in the church as much as you can. I know it looks different now. If you ever played with fire, you know, you, you have to keep the wood and you'll, you know, put wood on as, as you're done. You still want to keep the, keep the coals hot, but you'll notice if it whenever falls away, you can just watch it, right? And you can even just literally see it begin to grow colds if it's separated from the rest, slowly cools off. So we can't muster up zeal for God, but we can do our part. We can give God something to work with. We can get the wood ready and we can pack the kindling in so that when the spirit lights the fire, we burn for his glory. We're doing a book study on Wednesday nights through Zoom, which by the way, you can jump in at any point. We'd love to see more of you. And he used the image of hoisting the cells. We can't control the wind, but we can have the sails ready so that when the wind blows, we're ready to go. Number seven, seventh mark is service. Look again at Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. He is our king. We are his servants. And do it with fervency. These go together. With fiery fervency, serve the Lord. That's the type of people that God uses. God uses people who pour themselves out for his work. God can do whatever he wants, but historically he has used means. And the means that he has used are those people who work hard on his behalf. They serve him. They sacrifice their agenda and they take on his agenda. Sanctified sweat. I love the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians fifteen ten. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. 
No, it was not I. It was the grace of God that is with me. He's going to work for the Lord. He's going to serve the Lord with fervency. And that's who God typically uses. Read biographies, for one, to learn that, but also to be encouraged in your own walk. Y'all know that Luther is one of my favorites, far from perfect, but the man worked hard and the, the Lord used him greatly. He would talk about often just collapsing into his bed. In fact, at one point we learned that he went a whole year without even changing the sheets in his bed. Now that's just nasty, but God used him. See, slothful people don't get biographies written about him. Slothful people have little impact for the kingdom. So serve the Lord. Three verses seven marks of the community of Christ because of all that he's done because of the good news of the grace of Jesus then we respond together in lives committed to him and we seek to be a people characterized by genuine love a hatred of evil loving the good a family of faith a culture of honor not slothful but zealous for God servants of King Jesus let's pray together God thank you for the wealth of your word, its richness. Thank you for the call here that is very easy to understand but very challenging to live out because of our own sin, because of the world, because of the culture that tells us to pursue, pursue our own ends, but also because of the enemy who doesn't want us to do any of these things. So thank you for the clarity of your word. God, we do pray for our church that we would be able to apply these things even now. Give us creativity and wisdom, but also, Lord, make us eager to join back together that we might live out the call and the vision of Romans 12. We do pray for our government officials, both locally and at the state level and at the federal level. Lord, would you give them wisdom? As we begin to think about reopening, give them wisdom and clarity that we might do it well. Uh, honoring, help us as a church to know the balance of honoring those above us, but also uh, ready to get back together. Lord, give us wisdom as we begin to consider options. And Lord, we pray that you would just continue to work in our midst, form in us a Christ-centered community, a cruciform, a cross-shaped community, work the gospel in so that we look to others in self-giving love. By your spirit, build a community, build a culture of encouragement, of mutual honor, of fiery fervency for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.